Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Lathan. This is episode 43 and we're dealing with the arrival of the English at the Cape. As you know, the peninsula had become more important in the eyes of the English as they fought a lengthy war against France at the end of the 18th century, a war that was to continue through until Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo in 1815. The British would occupy the Cape twice, of course. When they arrived in 1795, the region was convulsed by disorder on the frontiers. The Khoikhoi rose up twice in conjunction with the Amatosa, as we're going to hear, while the frontier settlers were already in revolt by the time the British arrived. There was considerable hostility towards the British by the Trekboers and Dutch settlers, who began a campaign of passive resistance. Consequently, the British regime was authoritarian, in fact more so than the VOC, the Dutch East India Company. At the same time, the British were not interested in transforming the Cape, except for a handful of officials who seemed to be inspired to change the culture. One was Lady Anne Barnard, of whom we've already heard. The role of women will be probed closely over the next couple of episodes. As you'll hear, not only was she incredibly influential, but so too was Ingrika's mother, the Matkosa chief, who lived 600 kilometers east up the coast across the Fish River. It's one of those ironic resonances that history produces at times. So the letter in which the Prince of Orange told the Cape VOC authorities to receive the British garrison had stipulated that British possession was on condition that the Cape be restored to the Netherlands. Henry Dundas, or Lord Melville as he was known, had other ideas. He was Prime Minister William Pitt's main lieutenant and would serve in various capacities over the coming years. In 1796, Dundas told the British Parliament, I would be glad to see the minister who should dare to give up the Cape of Good Hope on any account. It was not exactly what William Pitt thought, though. There were others in Britain who thought of the Cape as a mere pawn in the wars that were ravaging Europe, to be used as a bargaining chip. Pitt was reluctant to compromise possible peace merely to hold on to what was obviously a strategic location. The Cape and Ceylon, or modern Sri Lanka, were the reasons why the first round of negotiations with the French and Dutch Batavia collapsed. One of the reasons was St. Helena was still regarded as more important by some in the British establishment. Its convenient location in the southern Atlantic meant that British fleets could bypass the Cape, heading to latitudes so low as they rounded the tip of Africa that ships' decks were often packed with snow. And yet, as we've already heard, St. Helena was already dependent on southern Africa for provisions and even water at times. Dundas, the Lord of Melville, has been described as the first imperialist of the Second British Empire for good reason. He had been head of the Indian Board of Control and before that, treasurer of the Navy. India and the eastern commercial ports were foremost on Dundas's mind and his interests. That made the possession of the Cape of Good Hope a matter of first importance for him. He referred to the Cape as this grand military post for the defence and support of India. So Lord McCartney arrived, as we've also heard, the first British governor of the Cape. Remember that Viceroy was infirm, worn out, suffering from gout of the head, and by the way, something I forgot to mention last episode, also from the effects of a gunshot wound he'd received during a duel many years before. Ah, the 18th century, you've got to love it. Lady Anne Barnard had accompanied her husband, McCartney's colonial secretary, Andrew Barnard, to the Cape. Also present on behalf of George III was John Barrow, a man who was to have a significant effect on South Africa and world affairs. He was described as extremely intelligent, an amateur scientist, a naturalist, geographer, a man of the Enlightenment if there ever was one. He had already revealed great gifts of intelligence gathering during his time in China and would now be called on to collect more intelligence on the frontier of South Africa. 
And South Africa was a vast frontier, and in some ways it still is. We've heard how McCartney dismissed the Graf Reinet Trekboers as savages, but these peasants, as he also called them, were going to cause the British a great deal of trouble over the next 200 years. Lady Anne Barnard had other ideas. She was determined to get to know the Dutch and began throwing dinner parties for the most influential who lived around Stellenbosch and Swellendam. The Boers began to call on her day and night, and the distinction between the old regime, the VOC, and the new British regime began to become more noticeable. For example, the Trek Boers were no longer told to remove their hats when entering the castle in Cape Town. Previously, VOC officials had imposed their will by enforcing petty rules, including removing hats upon entering the hallowed portal of de Castile. The Barnards and Lord McCartney rejected this, which improved the Boers' perception of the British only slightly. There were other swift changes. McCartney had instructions to abolish the torture machines that the VOC had been so good at using over the decades and the centuries, the wheel, the rack, the thumbscrew. The British ordered these machines of pain to be removed from the castle depths and placed in full view on a slight rise near the entrance to the castle. From now on, it was either hanging or being shot. Thank you very much. The Barnards were now courted in the foreshore castle and began to schmooze the influential families. Some of the froes bestow their kisses both on my and my better half very liberally, Lady Anne wrote. She was also amazed at the size of the Trekboers and the Freeburgers who came to visit. They are very fine men, she gushed. Their height is enormous, most of them six feet high and upwards, and I do not know how many feet across. I'm not sure if that's a positive comment, but let's continue. I heard that five or six hundred miles distant, they even reach seven feet. They were dressed in blue cloth jackets and trousers and very high flat hats. This was an unusual view of what she also called the lazy and comfortable life of the 18th century Freeburger. The Cape had a certain sleepy tranquility, so different in every respect to those of the Boers, strung out beyond the blue Hottentot Hollands mountains, along the coast, across the Karoo, out over the frontier. The Cape Dutch lived in handsomely facaded mansions inside small towns and on their farms near Cape Town. These were tree-shaded as they are now, spacious homes, high-roomed and furnished with simple furniture made from beautiful local and imported woods. Their functional and yet loving craftsmanship gave the Cape a certain style and elegance that matched the beautiful geography, the mountains, seascapes, gardens and streams that glistened in the African morning light. But Lady Anne Barnard had a few other things to say, and here her observations were more biting. When she travelled to some of these farms, she noted a few things that she did not repeat to her hosts. We shook hands and left them, she said after one visit in 1796. But not only them, their stoop was covered with a set of large idle boors in their blue jackets, sons of the family, men who do hardly anything besides eating and smoking. She noted too that these men were scarcely superintending the work of the farm, which is carried on by the slaves, but certainly never digging, threshing, or holding a plough. That was not exactly what was going on along the frontier, as we know. The Dutch, she noted, rose before dawn the year round, ate vast meals, and slept two hours every afternoon. But like the Spanish, apparently. This produced a certain kind of culture, she believed. The division of time and eating habits produced unfortunate side effects, at least according to this British woman. I do not like their division of time, nor the effects it produces either on the mind or body, sloth and constant eating being certainly the cause of the unwieldy fat 
which they have not an idea of preventing or regretting. Fat-shaming in 1796. Who knew? The first relationship-building project between Boer and Brit was not without positives. She spoke of how stylish was the Boer hospitality. I found this class of people very hospitable, she admitted, and I hear they are equally so to others whom they may be supposed to have less interest in obliging. Some of her descriptions are truly fascinating. Take one dinner she attended on a Cape farm where the family received us with all the open countenances of gladness and hospitality. And yet the biggest smile was that of the calf's head, nearly as large as an ox, which was boiled entire and served up with the ears whole and a pair of gallant young horns. That was followed up with bird's nest soup, then a spring of fish boiled in large slices. Admirable, she judged. The beef, however, she muttered, was bad. The mutton, by no means superior. The poultry, remarkably good. And the venison of the highest flavour. Talk about a big meal. The menier, who is unnamed, took the dinner party to view his tulips, which he was growing nearby. Everyone was surprised by the food and the tulips. As Lady Anne and her husband Andrew made their way back to Cape Town, they came across something else that stopped them in their tracks. A singular sound of music reached my ears, she wrote later, soft and wild, accompanied with loud laughter and talking. But on reaching the spot, I saw one slave only, with a bit of wood in his hands on which a few pegs were placed. She stopped to ask what the instrument was. It is my instrument. I talked to him, he played to me, answered the slave. We make company for one another. Lady Anne Barnard then made one of her more astute comments and one which holds true to today. I mention this as an instance of the hilarity of spirits which is possessed in a far greater degree by the black complexion than by the white. I suppose this is racial profiling by another name, but interesting to hear from a European lady of royal upbringing living in Africa in the late 1790s. Meanwhile, John Barrow was drawing maps. Born in 1764, only a few years before Captain Cook sailed for Tahiti, Barrow was one of those who were deeply influenced by exploration and travel. It's perhaps hard these days to understand this, as we spend a lot of time angrily debating the effects of colonialism and exploration. However, the pre-Darwinian world of James Hutton, Jean Lamar, Carolus Linnaeus, and Erasmus Darwin, the great-grandfather of Charles, loomed large indeed. It was the age of the scientific amateur, with each type of endeavour a new quest. The world was mysterious, but it could be understood using science. Charting the seas, the plants, the coasts, unexplored continents, the rocks and minerals, cataloguing plants and fossils, classifying animal species, it was all happening. It's not well remembered these days, but South Africa was deeply embedded in the minds of the investigators of the time. Swedish botanist Anders Sparman, C.P. Thunberg, who we've met, Scotsman William Patterson, the colourful and possibly slightly mad Le Vallon, all travelled about the Cape, collecting their collections. Into this new world dropped John Barrow, who had begun his life as a labourer in North Lancashire. He became an able seaman and taught himself maths and surveying, along with astronomy. McCartney noted that his young secretary was well qualified to observe, to judge, and to act, and whose journey, as he is known to be fond of natural history, passes for a tour, not of business, but of curiosity, science, and botanical research. It's also ironic to hear these words at a time when so much of the world is actually pursuing the opposite, the conspiracies of politics, the stupidity of sullenness, the desire to socially engineer. Speaking of social, 
John Barrow promptly fell in love with the Dutch girl at the Cape, whom he later married. And yet, as Barrow set off to investigate the frontier, he was clearly not ready for what he found. The Cape, with its organised lifestyle, its vineyards, Cape Gable architecture, oak-shaded estates and overladen tables were nothing like Graf Reinet. The frontier was a hard place full of mainly hard men and a few hard women. When he arrived in Graf Reinet, let's just say he was shocked. An assemblage of mud huts placed at some distance from each other, forming a kind of street, he observed. At the upper end stands the house of the Landrost, built also of mud, and a few miserable hovels that were intended as offices for public business. There was no milk, butter, cheese, no vegetables here. There was no butcher, no chandler to manufacture candles, no grocer, no baker. There was no wine, nor beer. And worse, the only beverage was water. Of the Sunday river, which in the summer season is strongly impregnated with salt. The lack of all comforts of life led to Barrow summing up the trek boers of the frontier with violent contempt and rage. He was hangry, I guess. He saw their life as brutal and uncouth. They were uneducated, lazy, gluttonous, unclean. While the trek boers ignored these comments, it was his comments about the koikoi that worried them most. Barrow said these boers were barbarously cruel to their koikoi servants and ruthless in their encroachment on Groseland. That point of view was never going to sit well in the harsh frontier. When Barrow arrived in Graf Reinet, it was five months after the trek boers had submitted to British rule, albeit under duress. That was in July 1797, five months after Lord McCartney had arrived in the Cape with his retinue. Barrow rolled into Graf Reinet with the new Landrost, who we heard about, F.R. Presler. Their entry into this mud-spattered village marked the restoration of control from the Cape after an interval of two and a half years. In that time, the Trek Boers had been making merry along the frontier, bartering and trading with the Khoi Antoza, ignoring the edict banning this form of business. Barrow and Bresler did not travel alone. They were joined by a small force of dragoons, light cavalry, who were supposed to inspire fear and awe. Bresler had already been rejected by these frontier Boers, and yet here he was, back with a British guard. The tensions and turbulence was only going to increase. You see, the eastern frontier of the Cape Colony in late 1797 was in a confused state. The last war against the San at Oza had been followed up by Boer insurrection, and the arrival of the British threw more branches on this fluttering fire. The Amakosa were also experiencing renewed upheavals, and the settlers were once again in the firing line. The colony's boundary at the Fish River was meaningless. In the Zurfeld, Amakosa bands roamed about once more, including in Columbia's followers. The Rarabi were split, as we know, and their own civil war was burning brightly. Barrow had seen some of this devastation as he travelled across the Fish River on his way to the great place to greet the young sovereign of the Rarabi, Enrika. Remember that Khosa nation had split into the separate houses of Rarabi and Kaleka, and Tlambi was overthrown by his nephew Enrika, but this was a convulsion of note. Succession had not been handled well, Kaleka had died in 1778, leaving that little five-year-old we met last episode called Hinsa. The Rarabi in 1782 were now battling both the Tembu of their chief Rarabi and his heir Mlawu. And Mlawu died and left two sons in Timbu, who was the elder and should rule, and in Tlambe. But lo and behold, when Kawuta of the Tembu pitched up at the great place to formally anoint the new young king, he headed towards Ngika and placed a traditional necklace of red coronation beads around his neck 
Then he turned to Ntimbu and placed a smaller necklace around his neck and walked away without saying a word. That was a bit of a shocker. So all of these uprisings and fights we've heard about originated from Kawuta's lack of clarity. Mutterings since then suggest that Kawuta did this to placate Nklambe, who was to rule on Nglika's behalf, because Nklambe had fallen in love with one of Mlawu's wives, who was the mother of Nglika, known as Queen Nojoli of the Amatembu. What we'll probe next episode is the Tembu mother of Nklambe, a woman of great sexual appetite, as Kunrod de Base found out. The Tembu were always the traditional source of Amakosa royal brides, and Queen Nojoli was regarded as a woman of great beauty. She was also a woman of great size, but I need to stop right there or be accused of fat-shaming like Lady Anne Barnard. However, I think Noel Mostat's description is far more acceptable. She was merely grossly corpulent. And with that delightful turn of phrase, it's time to end the podcast for this episode. Next episode, we'll explore what Queen Nojoli had been up to, then Barrow's experiences on the frontier as he collected intelligence for the British governor. Things only speed up from here on. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. It escalates the saga. If you want to contact me, do so via the website desmondlatham.com or on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, Salagatli Onke. Thank you.